Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, man, man, it's so good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Josh, if we haven't met. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> I'm such a big deal. The drummer, of all people, bumps me. Uh, no, no. Uh, we, we started Movement Church about six years ago. In fact, six years ago tonight was our very first gathering. It was a preview service, we called it. It was a time for us to come together and kind of try some things out. And some of you, absurdly, are still around after six years. And it was a time for us to say that we want to be a church that doesn't take ourselves too seriously, but we take Jesus very seriously. We want to be a church that's a help. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. We want to be a church that if we were to disappear, that we would be missed. Not just by those who call the church home, call Movement Church home, but by the surrounding community. We want to be an, an asset. We want to be somebody who's there as a positive. Because we believe that Jesus doesn't just change individual lives, but he changes everything, everyone, everywhere. So here at Movement Church, we, we have a lot of fun, but we take that seriously. And we're in week two of a series called Ghost of Christmas Past. And maybe you're here with family, you're coming to town to celebrate, maybe you're, you're going to celebrate, maybe you're, you're here because you've got the, you're celebrating graduations for people who graduated a semester, that's awesome, congratulations to you that did that. Uh, maybe you're in this spot where you're, you're kind of checking out a church and you thought maybe Christmas is a good time, kind of stirs up some nostalgia, all that good stuff, but we're really glad that you're here. Uh, but just so you know a little bit, if you're kind of a first-timer, I've got, I've got some opinions I've got some opinions about Christmas specifically. You jump on Facebook, you jump on social media, everybody's kind of sharing their opinions about things. So I got some opinions. First off, eggnog is disgusting, okay? Yeah, there it is. There it is, yeah. If you want whole milk, just buy whole milk, okay? Uh, eggnog is disgusting. First off, Die Hard, is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? Moot Point Christmas Vacation is better than all of them, all right? Christmas Vacation is the Christmas movie you want to watch. When you're opening presents, it shouldn't be a free-for-all. You should, like, enjoy it, take your time, but don't do the thing where you got to take turns and you got to hold up what it is and you got to run over and get a picture and a hug. It's like, like, let the kids open presents for crying out loud, okay? So if that's all you need to hear, there you go. You can kind of zone out and jump on your phone for the rest of our time together, but here's where we're headed for the next 25 minutes or so together. We are going to talk about something that I think can pop up at Christmas time, but honestly, anytime we get together with family, anytime we are reminded of our past, anytime that we are reminded of some things we might regret. Uh, one of the ghosts that might pop up in our lives here at Christmas time has to do with shame. Now, there's an important distinction here. First off, you might think of shame and guilt as synonymous. You might think those are the same thing. Well, I think they're very different. I think guilt is the thought. Guilt is something that we think. Guilt says, I've done something bad. I think guilt can be a really positive thing. Guilt in my life can push me to do better, can, can cause me to seek forgiveness, to apologize, can cause me to do something to make something right. The problem is, is when that thought, that guilt, I've screwed up, I'm going to recognize a mistake, moves into an emotion I call shame. And the difference here is that shame doesn't just say, you've done something wrong. Shame says, you are wrong, you are bad, you are worthless. Shame says, you are not valuable. Shame says, you're never going to change. 
And one of these ghosts that can pop up, one of these ghosts that can kind of follow us around, we feel like we're actually haunted by them, is this idea of shame. Now, I'm going to guess, because I know this is true in my life. This is true in my life and in my past. There are things I'm not proud of. There are things that I want to be hidden. There are things that I don't want people to know about. I assume that's true for, for all of us to some degree or another. We've got regrets. We've got things that we wish we could change. Now, maybe for you, you would, you would even embrace some language. You would kind of have some of this self-talk. You would say, I'm a horrible person. I'm a failure. I'm never going to get any better. No one could ever love me. Maybe for you, you're, you're, you're almost embarrassed by it. Perhaps your regrets have to do with some financial decisions. And you're here at Christmas time, and you want to be able to provide for those that you love, maybe your kids even, and because of debt or because of where you are, you feel like you are a failure. That sounds a lot like shame to me. Uh, perhaps you're in a spot where you, you feel like you've been looking at things, you've been taking in things visually that you shouldn't be. And, and maybe you're a Jesus follower and you're engaged in this kind of the secret world of, of lust or, or pornography, and you feel like, I'm a bad person. Maybe it's your past, and maybe it's also something to do with a, a sexual sin. You're like, if you knew what I did, if you knew the, the ways I abused things, the substances or, or people, you would not want me around. If you only knew what I did, you would say, I, that person, they're not a good person. And that's what you're telling yourself. You know, there's some things that we take, we kind of move this forward, we kind of begin to change our identity. We say I'm flawed, we say I'm broken, we say I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm weak, I'm pitiful, I'm pathetic, I'm insignificant, I'm worthless, I'm unwanted. When we engage in shame and let these statements about ourselves run wild, we dip, we dip into these self-destructive behaviors, Right? If you're familiar with, with how addiction works, you know that self-sabotage and self-destruction are very common ways in which addiction manifests. But you don't have to be someone who acknowledges that you're an addict. You don't have to be someone that goes to an AA or an NA meeting to acknowledge that when we are in a bad place with our shame, we do things that make things worse. Now, I know this. I know this because I live this. I've dealt with these things. I am dealing with these things. And I'll share a bit about that as well. But this isn't Josh up here saying, I'm perfect, be like me. This is Josh saying, I've learned some things the hard way. And I've learned some things from some professionals. And I see them reflected, amplified, and truly in Scripture in the ways in which we understand it. That bring light and life and grace to us. One of the things that I see over and over again in my process is something that a counselor told me about. Maybe you're more familiar with it than I am, but this is something that stuck with me, this idea of shame-based thinking. I want to give you a couple, couple of things about the ways in which, a few things about the ways in which shame-based thinking manifests. When your identity is colored by something you did and you say to yourself, I am worthless, I am bad, I am wrong, I am a terrible person, so on and so forth, you enter into this idea of shame-based thinking. The first thing that we do in this thinking model is that we become vulnerable to perfectionism. We say it has to be absolutely right, otherwise it's worthless. No matter how good the thing is, no matter how good the situation is, we don't just say, man, this could be better. We say this should be better. And we beat ourselves up for this. 
The second thing is very close to this, it kind of follows it, is we embrace this critical spirit, this, this criticism, this, this ways in which we look at ourselves, we have a very hard time not just seeing the faults in ourselves. And then we transfer that to other people. We say, this person is wrong. We see all of their flaws. And this critical nature leads us to creating distance where there shouldn't be distance in our relationships. And the third thing comes back to this self-destructive behavior, this self-defeating behavior. We use these self-defeating behaviors as kind of a form of protection, a form of escape. We go to those things, we, we overindulge, and therefore we find ourselves hitting distance from others. Now this is why Christmas gets so crazy, right? This is why, this is why Christmas can be so hard. My dad's a mental health professional. And he used to talk about how, how hard it was for some of his patients at Christmas time. How hard it was for people at Christmas time. Maybe you think about your kids. They're not eating right. They're not sleeping right. They're so excited and people keep giving them sugar and candy. And of course they get sick right around Christmas. If we have mental health issues, the same things, the same issues can be compounded. It can be really, really destructive. Think about it this way. You're, you're at Christmas and all of a sudden maybe your mom lashes out for no reason. Maybe your mom is, goes and tells you things that are, that are just hurtful and are painful. Well, maybe we need to recognize that perhaps she's dealing with some internal identity warping shame. Maybe you see your dad or an uncle or someone else in your family that, that just drinks way too much and just gets, gets angry and gets mean. Maybe for him that's a way to kind of distance himself and do something that's self-destructive. Maybe your in-laws will, will come in and they'll, they'll pick at the way you raise your kids. I know that never happens to anyone, right? And, and you feel that little tinge, that little critical spirit, and you have to think, well, maybe they're being critical because they've got some identity issues as well. So why does this matter? Why does this reality matter? And how does it connect to this idea of following Jesus? We read in the Bible in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which is the, the stuff before Jesus, these are the Hebrew scriptures, we read this of this prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah has these incredible words that cut to the heart. Now, the prophets of the Bible aren't exactly fortune tellers. They're not, they're not people that just say, this is what's going to happen. They are the ones that reveal truth in the situation. They are the ones that point out what's really going on. The prophets are the people you don't invite to parties because the prophets will give you the truth unvarnished. But, it, but they'll also give you the truth in the positive light. And so in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4, the prophet is kind of the mouthpiece for God and he's speaking to the people of God and he says this, Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth. Internalize this. I'm serious. If you walk away with nothing, nothing else today, internalize this. The God of the Bible is not interested in punishing you. The God of the Bible is interested in freeing you. We've all got regrets. We all live in fear of being found out. And the God of the Bible... The God of the Bible says that shame is no longer on you. That regret no longer decides who you are. We see this again in the New Testament. 
one of the followers of Jesus, this man named John, who at the time of Jesus in his ministry, John was probably the youngest one. He was perhaps maybe a teenager or someone in his early 20s, and he is following Jesus around. He sees what's going on. He writes a gospel that, ha- that bears his name, an account of Jesus, but then he also writes these letters to churches that bear his name as well. And he talks about this freedom, the way that shame can be released from our lives and our hearts. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You ever been in a spot? You regret doing something. You hurt someone. You apologize. You make it right. But then the next time you see them, the next time you're around that person, it's still awkward. It's still rough. And maybe you're driving home from that party or that experience, or you're, you're going back to your desk at work, and all you're doing is replaying things, and you think, maybe I, what I thought was done isn't. And all of a sudden, we're beating ourselves up over and over and over again. Well, a man who followed Jesus around, who heard what Jesus said, who began to understand what was going on here, and elaborates on, on this stuff to an early church that's trying to wrestle with some of the same stuff we are wrestling with, says that he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He will not just purify us. He will not just clean us up from the little things or one portion of it, but all. It's complete. In total, this is what happens. Is this is what I believe what happens when we confess, when we ask for forgiveness, it's given to us. Elsewhere, the Bible talks about forgiveness. It says that that in God's understanding, when we are forgiven, our sin and who we are, our regrets, our past, our shame, and who we are, as far as from the east, is from the west. That is so far removed, it is no longer in any way coming together of who we are and what we've done. If you know the story in the Old Testament, the kind of honestly the, the founding basis of all understanding, that if you want to understand what it means to be an Israelite, if you want to understand what it means for the Jewish people, and you understand the Hebrew Scriptures, start with the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. In this book, we read about how the people of God are enslaved. They're enslaved not just for one generation or two, but for 430 years, they are slaves in Egypt. For 430 years, they are slaves in Egypt, and God raises up this leader, this man named Moses. And Moses is not qualified to do this, but Moses comes as kind of a a mouthpiece for God, as a messenger from God, and he leads his people, God's people, out of slavery. And maybe you know bits and pieces of this story. You know about the Red Sea parting. You know about how they were wandering around the desert. And God literally had, had like wafers of bread fall from the sky every morning. It would feed them, sustain them. They're out there in the desert and their water pours out of a rock. And it's just miracle after miracle after miracle. But there's a pattern that emerges over and over and over and over and over again for the people of God out in the desert. They want to go back. They look around and they say, well, we might have been slaves in Egypt, but at least we got a hot meal. We might have been slaves in Egypt, but at least we had, a, had some sort of shelter to sleep under. We might have been slaves in Egypt, but we knew what the next day was going to hold. It, it was almost as if they had been freed, but they hadn't been. That they had been freed in part, but they weren't 
fully there. They were free in person, but not in their hearts. Now, this is the problem. We think about it in our own lives. We think we can understand cognitively what forgiveness is, but it's not like a switch has been flipped and everything's fine. If you have any familiarity, either personally or professionally, with, with trauma, with abuse, or if you're a historian, you look at slavery and the ways in which this plays out throughout all cultures and throughout all of humanity, there is this process that even though it, that process may end, even though the trauma, the abuse may stop, that doesn't mean the consequences do. It's an ongoing thing that can ring through years and generations. And that's the problem that we have. We may intellectually know that, well, Jesus has forgiven my sins, that Jesus has made us new, but in our hearts, at our deepest part of ourselves, our identity is not yet grounded in Jesus. Our our identity, who we say we are, is not quite right. So here's the bottom line with all this. I do this, and I think many of us do this as well. You're still believing that you are something that God says you are not. My problem is I'm still believing, I'm still believing that I am something that God says I'm not. Now, I'm not saying this is easy to embrace. I know all too well how hard this is. I've shared before that basically for the last 10 years or so, I've had a real issue with anxiety. And for much of this time, I've been in counseling, and much of this time, I've, I've taken medication. This is something I still do. So I acknowledge this is a medical issue. This is a, a chemical imbalance. Well, I'm a, I am so pro-mental health care. Like, 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 take care of yourself. Talk to pros, right? But I also recognize that there is an identity component to this. That I've got to do my part in terms of, in terms of the, the work with mental health pros, but I also have to recognize that there is an identity issue here. Because so much of my anxiety comes back to this shame-based thinking. It says that, that I am not going to be viewed well, that people are going to see me as a failure, that I am going to be outed as a fraud. Now, this could be as a pastor, it could be as a husband, it could be as a dad, it could be as a man, that I am somehow going to be found out. And I'm not quite sure always what that is, but that at some level, my anxiety comes back to this fear, this fear of failure and failure in front of people. My, my shame-based thinking comes by and says to me that I'm a failure. It says that I'm the sum of my mistakes, that my regrets define me, and there's nothing I can do to change that. And so I jump to these self-defeating thoughts, these self-defeating practices to try to, try to insulate myself. And no matter how good things are, I can always say to myself, well, they should be better. And I'm coming up short. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is not an easy thing. It's not an easy fix. I'm apologizing up front if you expect that, but that's not how this works. But the bottom line for me, the way to kind of move and kind of heal and move forward in this is to focus, to change my focus from what I'm not to who Christ is. To change my focus from what I'm not to who Christ is. The only way to, sh- to heal, I think, from shame is to start there. Now, I'm not going to get into your business right now, but if you think that, you know, well, I'm a bad person, can I say respectfully, you probably have an argument there. If you say to yourself, I'm a failure, I bet you could find evidence to support it. If you say to yourself, like, I'm a bad friend, I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad person, I'm, I'm not reliable, you can find evidence to support it, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we can all see that. The problem comes when that's all we see. 
The problem comes when that's all we see, that, that we, are, we are in this spot where we say, well, that's all I am. I am the sum of my mistakes. That, that, ultimately, that ultimately, we have to move from focusing on what I'm not to who Christ is. So let me put this back on you. I want to focus, I want to ask you to focus on yourself for a moment. I'd love for everyone in the room to answer to themselves quietly, silently there. Maybe you need to write this down or maybe you need to hold this in your mind. Answer the following question. What am I? What does the shame-based thinking tell you? What am I? Mine says I'm, I'm a failure. Mine says I'm not a leader. I'm not making a difference. I know it's tough to, to, to think about those things, but, but do it. I encourage you to do that work, to ask yourself and hold on to that for a moment. While you're considering that, remember the Israelites. 430 years they're slaves. This isn't just something that changes overnight. But they're out of Egypt. They're moving into where God has given them land. And this is after Moses has died and a new leader has emerged, kind of the second leader of the peoples, this man named Joshua is kind of a general, kind of a leader at that level. And Joshua receives this message from God and he gives it to the people. It's recorded here in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. It said, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. I've rolled away the shame. I love that picture, that our shame is like a boulder that we are carrying. It's something we're dragging behind us. And God pushes it away and removes it from our lives. Someone may have said shame on you before. Someone may have used that phrase, shame on you. And that is so accurate. Because that's what shame does. It's like piling on top of us. It's weighing us down. It's reminding us that we are the sum of our failures. We are not who God says we are. When we hear that, when we hear that shame on you, we don't hear that we are forgiven. We don't hear that we are redeemed, that we are loved. Understand this. You are not what you did in your past. You are not what others say you are. You're not who others say you are. And you are not even who you think you are. You are who Christ says you are. You are who Jesus says you are. You are who Jesus says you are. And who are you if you are in Christ? If you have said yes to Jesus, who are you? Well, you are free. You are forgiven. You are changed. You are redeemed. You are healed. You are blessed. You are chosen. You are complete. And finally, I think perhaps the most perfect metaphor. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. The Bible also tells us that there's no more condemnation. There's no more condemnation for those that are in Jesus. There's no more condemnation. So what is it for you? What is that thing? What is that thing when I ask you to consider, what does shame-based thinking tell you? I am a blank. I said a mind is I'm a failure. If you have that in your mind, I want you to do something. I want you to twist it around. Obviously, I want you to say that I am not a blank. I want you to be able to say, I want, I, I want to be able to say, I am not a failure. But I don't want to stop just there, and I don't want you just to stop right there. You might be saying to yourself, I am not worthless. I am not 
unlovable. I am not hopeless. I want you to be able to say beyond that, I am not. Say that, yes, but then go further and say, I am blank because Jesus says I am. I am free. I am saved. I am complete. I am forgiven. I am a son. I am a daughter because of who Jesus says I am. Twist that around. Twist that around and see something else. Because you are not your past. You are not your failures. You are not your mistakes. You are somebody who's experienced shame. And Jesus still says, okay, I'm not done with you. And maybe you're sitting here and you think, okay, I'm not, I'm not in on this whole Jesus thing, which is, which is fine. Like, I'm glad that you're here. And I've been thinking about you this morning a lot. And that might sound weird to you because it kind of is. But I've been thinking about the people that may be in this room that, that, that don't agree with me on Jesus. That maybe there's some respect, maybe there's some admiration even, but they wouldn't say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and I think about all the sermons I've heard about Christmas, about Jesus, about all the ways in which, about forgiveness and love, and all those are good. And I would imagine that even those of us in the room that, that aren't a follower of Jesus, we've heard those too. And something I think that we miss over and over and over again is not the, the certainty that comes with faith, because I'm still looking for that. It, it's not the perfect moral life, because I haven't found that yet either. What, what I see over and over again that maybe we don't talk about enough is just how often the story of God uses people who have been shamed. How often God uses people who know shame to do God's work. Moses. Moses was abandoned, probably at least in his mind. That was probably the story he was told. He grew up in the seat of power as his people were enslaved by that same power. He lashes out. He kills a guy and then runs away. I think he knew shame, yet God uses him. We go to the Easter story. There are questions in that community about Jesus' birth and the timeline of it. People looked at Mary and Joseph and said, you broke God's law. You had a kid out of wedlock. Shame on you. Jesus experienced this probably for the rest of his life. Isn't that the guy who was born under questionable circumstances? And isn't that the guy who came from nowhere where they're not educated, they're not smart, they're not whatever? When the announcement, when the announcement that Jesus was being born was delivered to shepherds, Something that maybe you sing about, you've heard this story, the Christmas story, but we miss some of the details. Shepherds were not welcome in polite society. They weren't even welcome in religious society. They would be banned for a time period in or before they could go to the temple to worship. And at the time when we read that Jesus' birth is announced, it's nighttime. Well, guess who's pulling the night shift amongst shepherds? Probably some teenagers probably the kids in their group. So the witnesses of the birth of Jesus, the ones that are supposed to take this message, are some of the lowest people societally in terms of occupation, and within that, the lowest people on the totem pole. Who are the first people 
who were the first people to, to witness and therefore announce, the first preachers of the resurrection. It's a group of women. Because, of course, women would show up to take care of the things they needed to take care of. They wouldn't be cowardly hiding like the men were. But in that society, women were not trusted to give authoritative testimony. And so all the times that they would say, you don't understand, we saw an empty tomb, we saw Jesus who was dead walk out, they would say, what do you know? You're just a silly, silly little woman. I think about Peter. Peter who goes on to become the leader, one of the, one of the leaders of the early church. He denied that he even knew Jesus three different times in this short period where Jesus was on trial and to when the Jesus died on the cross. I don't even know this guy. I bet he knew shame. I think about Paul, the greatest missionary we have, the guy who wrote roughly half of the New Testament. He knew shame because in his first job as an adult, what, I, what he did was he served arrest warrants for Christians. He oversaw executions of Christians. I think he knew shame. What I see over and over and over again in the Bible, what I see in my life, what I see in the history of the church, is that God is not interested in the perfect people. God is interested in the people who know shame, who know regret. God is interested in the people who say, I am worthless, and God is about redeeming them. And so I don't know where you are at with Jesus this morning. I don't know if you're someone who says, I go to church every Sunday, I believe, I'm in it, and you say, but I've got these doubts, and I would hate for someone to know about them publicly. Or maybe you're on the opposite end. You have doubts, you are a skeptic, you are a cynic, and you voice those loudly, and that's okay too. Wherever you are, I hope you would hear not a, not a fire and brimstone message that you would not hear, that you better do this, you better do that. I hope you would see that the God of the universe isn't done with you. Because he's not done with us. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And they're going to lead us into a time here this morning. And it's something that we...